Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 41 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green. And today I sat down with Coral Chung, the founder and CEO of SendRev. Named a top 50 brand in D2C by the lead two years in a row, SendRev is a global direct-to-consumer luxury handbag brand for the modern woman. In this episode, Coral shares with us her journey from moving to the U.S. from China at five years old, to working in investment banking and consulting, to having a spiritual experience that ignited her idea to launch SenRev. We talk about her global vision for the business, how she thinks about setting expectations, and how she's grown as a leader. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Coral, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your amazing story in building SendRev. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Lee. So where are you from originally? I was actually born in China and grew up in Southern California. Wow. When did you move to Southern California? In the late 80s, I was about five years old, and it was quite a big adventure for me at that time. My parents originally immigrated to the U.S. to go to grad school. And so uh, I had actually lived with my grandparents for a period of time and then uh, rejoined them once wow. they graduated. Mm -hmm. Did you have any siblings growing up? Only child. <laughs> I was caught in the one child policy back in the day in China. Wow. Yes. Mm -hmm. I've heard and my parents, I think, yes, my parents, uh, I think, later contemplated having children, but other more than me, but they were always so busy with their careers. And uh, it was just really challenging. And, and I think by the time I was already kind of a fully functioning kid, it's really hard to have an infant again. So yeah. they just couldn't like start all over again. They're um, like, they yeah, I, it's too much. Let's skip it. You know? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's funny. I always wanted an older brother or older sister. So that wasn't possible anyway. So I didn't mind that I didn't have a younger sister. That's kind of funny. Why did you want an older sibling instead of a younger one, which could have been more possible? I don't, I just had an impression. I think I was a really avid reader when I was little. And so I would read books like, you know, Little House in the Big Woods or, um, babysitter's club. And in all of those books, it's like the older sibling was so much cooler and more fun. And the younger sibling was kind of annoying. And so I had this impression that was probably a stereotype, but yeah. I'm an That's older why. sibling, so I'm just going to take this and run with it. And say that I think <laughs> older siblings are cool too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so what kind of kid were you growing up? What did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, I would say that I was pretty introverted and shy as a kid. I think um, it was always really interesting because I would say that's still true today. I have a side that's very social and very uh, open. Um, but, but on the other hand, I love to read, love to spend time by myself and uh, definitely am quite introspective in that way. Um, I think that has to do with, uh, you know, I was an only child, so mm -hmm. I didn't grow up with a ton of other kids. Obviously I had great friends and neighbors and cousins and so forth, but, um, it's not like living in a house full of kids. Uh, so I would occupy my time with a lot of, um, different, you know, solo activities like reading and so forth. Um, 
I would say that I was fairly artistic um, and creative. Um, I really focused a lot on dance. That was kind of my sport growing up. Um, and I did a variety uh, of competitive dancing kind of throughout my childhood. Um, and what kind of dance did you do? Ballet or something? Yeah, I did ballet. I did um, jazz and I did a lot of um, actually Chinese cultural dance. Um, so like traditional uh, ribbon dancing and band dancing and um, was it was a huge part of me kind of connecting to my cultural heritage, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really passionate about that. Um, I also really um, just loved, you know, growing up in a very bicultural way. Um, so that was a huge part of my upbringing. Um, I'm fluent, you know, a native speaker in Mandarin, which I think is fairly rare for kids who immigrate um, in the U.S., when they're really young. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I think my parents did a really exceptional job on. How did they do that? Did they just only speak to you in Mandarin at home or something? Or like, how were you able to learn both at a really young age? They were really smart about it. I would say they were highly strategic. Um, they actually really kind of immersed me in the culture first and foremost. And so I think when I first moved to the U.S., I really quickly, like many kids do, want to just assimilate and be American and, you know, eat cheeseburgers and go to McDonald's and, you know, like... All those healthy foods. Yeah. Yeah, like what little kids want to do when they're five or six years old. But my parents are very strategic. They... uh, introduced me to a lot of like Chinese cuisine. It was like food is a big part of my upbringing as well. My um, dad was actually a chef in a Shanghainese restaurant when he was in grad school. So he was a chef like part-time and over the weekends. Um, And so he makes really amazing like soup dumplings. And so I kind of grew up uh, with a lot of Chinese food. That was a huge part of it. Um, they made me watch like the news and things like that all in Chinese. Hmm. Um, so that was really interesting because I was kind of absorbing all sorts of information in, in Chinese. So it wasn't just them speaking to me every day in Mandarin. It was, uh, I would say they did a much more comprehensive immersion for me as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always curious about that. You know, my husband's German, he speaks fluent German and it's Mm. obviously his native language. And so we're always wondering, like, how do you teach a kid two different languages, you know, at such an early age when they're probably surrounded by one of the languages, at least like 95% of the time, it's really tough to fit in that other language. So that's interesting. They found a bunch of different ways to immerse you. So what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a kid? What were you thinking? You're like here in America and you're in the school system and you're, what are you thinking? You want to be a dancer or what were you imagining? Yeah, your- that's, that's always kind of the interesting duality of my upbringing. I would say that I had like this huge creative side. I loved reading and writing, um, you know, was very artistic, loved dance, obviously. Uh, But then I had this other side that was highly analytical, very, uh, you know, almost stereotypical Asian American characteristics of being really good at math and science and all the STEM type of subjects that my parents really emphasize as important because uh, my dad was an engineer and my mom was a chemist. So you know, they really wanted me to be uh, excellent at math and, uh, you know, very early on focused on that aspect of my education. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was an interesting combination. So yes, you know, I definitely had uh, spurts where I wanted to be a dancer, um, spurts where I wanted to be like a scientist. Um, but what's interesting is I feel like business kind of combined a lot of yeah. the, the duality of those things. And so I grew up um, kind of seeing my parents who were academics and scientists and engineers turned into entrepreneurs. And so I was always really fascinated by business. So one of my kind of icons growing up, I would say, 
uh, was an Asian American female, Andrea Jung, who at the time was the CEO of Avon. She was, you know, one of the few Asian American and female leaders of a major company. Mm -hmm. Um, So I remember really looking up to her um, and, you know, thinking about, oh, someday, you know, maybe I could be like her. That's awesome. You know, I knew what Avon was growing up because I think my mom had like a bunch of samples and had an Avon lady come to the house once in a while, but I never thought about who the CEO was at the time. It just never like occurred to me to think about who was the person kind of, you know, running the business. But that's pretty cool that you had kind of a role model to look to, um, to say, hmm, I think I want to be like that. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's quite a remarkable woman. And I actually had the great fortune of meeting her um, when I was at business school um, at Stanford. Oh, nice. So that was really uh, kind of a cool moment. Very, very cool. So when you were younger, were you were there any signs of being kind of entrepreneurial? Like, did you have a lemonade stand? Did you try to sell anything as a kid? Is there any early signals of that? Oh, I definitely had a lot of failed ventures, I would say. Lemonade stand included. Um, yeah, I, I definitely attempted the lemonade stand. You know, the first time I think it was unsuccessful because it was a product issue. You know, we didn't add enough sugar and it was like incredibly bitter. sour and, <laughs> and bitter. Zero um, repeat customers. I think the second time um, we had like a marketing issue where we picked like a weekday afternoon. It wasn't a high traffic time. Mm. And so, you know, we finally got the product right, but nobody came um, so that we were really depressed. And then I remember the third time, like really ended it all for me. I was like carrying this big jar of lemonade and it just slipped through my hands and just like you know, the, the glass shattered and everything spilled. And I was like, okay, this is, I'm done with lemonade stands. Like I'm not um, cut out for selling lemonade. This is yeah, it. The logistics is too complicated. Too sticky. Um, it's bitter. No <laughs> one shows up. Yeah. Yeah. It was that was, I was depressed by that. Um, but yeah, I did a lot of different things growing up. I was really involved actually with student government. So um, always ran a lot of different fundraisers and things like that. Um, <laughs> we used to do, um, it, it's kind of silly, but we used to do this thing called the topless car wash. It, it sounds more scandalous than it is, but it basically was marketed um, as a, you know, to be kind of risque, but actually what it meant was um, we marketed it as a free topless car wash, right? So people would get their car wash. Um, but it turns out what it means is that if you don't tip, you, the top of your car doesn't get washed. Oh, so yeah. Because I had no idea. You know, obviously my mind is thinking what everybody else is probably thinking. That's a scandalous, scandalous thing. But it's actually, we don't wash the top of your car unless you give a really nice tip. So I was always in charge of like the, the fundraising part of things, uh, which was pretty fun. That's awesome. So when you, you know, you're kind of, you went to college, where did you go to school and what kind of like internships did you have? What were your first couple uh, jobs? So I went to Wharton and Penn and I did a really uh, specialized program called the Huntsman program. So it's one of those dual degree programs where every year there's about 30 to 40 students that participate. And there's a very strict requirement that you need to have uh, another language besides English at a native level, um, because there's a study abroad program where you go to that country and you are at one of the top institutions there and you um, actually take classes with all the local kids and so forth. Um, So I did that and uh, had a really amazing experience. It was very formative for me, uh, you know, just growing up in California and suddenly making the shift to Philly and the East Coast, that was very transformative and challenging just with the cold weather and, you know, snow in April. I remember feeling like, wow, this is really depressing. <laughs> um, but yeah. anyhow, um, it was a really great experience. It, it's a very competitive, I would say, undergrad environment where people cared a lot about internships and professional advancement. 
And again, coming from California, uh, I would say with a more laid back West Coast type of style, it was quite startling. Um, but I definitely uh, enjoyed it and uh, just built some amazing friendships and so forth. My, my best friend from college is still my best friend today. And she was my roommate. And um, I think, you know, it was a really immersive, amazing experience. Um, in terms of my internships, you know, freshman year, I worked at a startup. It was super interesting. It was an MBA student who partnered with this woman and the two of them. It was very, very early. You know, they kind of had a business plan and I just was the freshman intern doing a variety of things for them. I remember mm -hmm. like I was translating documents for them. Um, I was putting together different PowerPoint presentations. Sometimes I would uh, put together like a financial analysis. So I just did all these random things and the company didn't end up taking off or doing particularly well, um, but it was really interesting. Um, and I, I would say I enjoyed it. It was, it was pretty fun, you know, to have a seat at the table, uh, even though I was a, it was summer after my freshman year. Um, okay. And then I did the more Wharton traditional route of investment banking, <laughs> which is sort of Surprise. like, a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally not surprising. You know, like, like I was saying, I have this whole, you know, the creative side is always fighting the analytical side. Sometimes they could live in harmony, but yeah. So I felt the need to try investment banking because that was the thing to do that seemed to be the prestigious internship to get. Um, and the fact that I was able to get it in my sophomore year was, you know, something even more exciting, I guess. So I had a internship with UBS, um, in their mergers and acquisitions group, uh, based in LA. So yeah, that was a really interesting experience. Uh, I definitely felt like I checked the box. I don't ever have to do it again. <laughs> um, I think there were things I really enjoyed about it. I actually um, met some really cool people and had some mentors, but it was a tough experience for me. I would say I was um, the only female of all of the analysts and uh, it was a very almost like 80s investment banking culture. Gee, um, sounds fun. How many men were you working with? <laughs> I mean, it was like a sea of men, you know how they call the <laughs> cubicles, the ball pens, right? It was yeah. like a sea of uh, young, like testosterone driven, super competitive and aggressive dudes, mm -hmm. um, bros, if yeah. you will. And um, yeah, I just remember everybody worked crazy hours, right? Even mm -hmm. as like an intern and whatnot. So I remember... Oh, around like, you know, midnight or so people start like just, you know, like unbuttoning their shirts, like taking off their pants, like really relaxing in the office because it's starting to, and you're like, hello, I'm still here. I know. So I was so, I was so uncomfortable, but I was an intern and I don't know. I just, so I remember like hiding underneath the desk of my cubicle and just like doing my work down below because I couldn't deal with all the crazy things that were happening uh, above. Um, but yeah, it was rowdy. It was, it was, I mean, it was very much like that eighties, early nineties kind of banking uh, world, which uh, I thought was really interesting for a summer, but definitely didn't see myself doing that as a full-time career. Hey guys, I want to tell you a little bit about a new report we're launching here at Future Commerce in partnership with Gladly called The New DIY. It's all about the new trend that has emerged around the passion economy and modern consumption, which begins with peer inspiration, continues with product education, and culminates into participation or an online purchase. The report covers how these trends start on social media, the importance of great customer experience across all brands, regardless of industry, and the implications this trend has on retailers. You can get the full report today over at futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. That's futurecommerce.fm slash the new DIY. So you survived the summer, um, <laughs> learned a lot, sounds like. And um, so then what happened yeah. from there? 
Yeah. You know, I think that was a real wake up call for me because, uh, I thought I would enjoy it. I thought that was the prestigious and kind of right thing to do. Um, and in my heart of hearts, I realized that was not for me. So it was kind of a turning point, you know, in terms of, uh, feeling like, Oh, you know, do I get off this track of what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, Mm -hmm. as a young Wharton Penn undergrad that's ambitious and wants to have a really tremendous career and all of this. Mm -hmm. Um, So I actually took a summer off my junior year to really evaluate what I wanted to do. Um, And that was, that was really interesting. So that summer I partnered with a professor um, and did a lot of academic research Um, focused on international business and uh, international development, Um, worked on a bunch of case studies and papers and um, was kind of exploring like, hey, you know, maybe uh, it makes sense for me to pursue a more academic route, you know, potentially get a PhD in um, economics or in international business or some of these areas that I'm really passionate about. Um, And I think that was great. It was a good experience. Um, but I just didn't feel like it was action oriented enough. It was a little bit too theoretical. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt this strong sense that it's really hard for me to write papers about things that I didn't experience for myself. Um, and certainly I could gather data and do research and interviews and all of that, but it wasn't as satisfying at, as uh, seeing it and experiencing it for myself. So how did that motivate you to have a different change or to work elsewhere where you could be more action oriented? Yeah, so that's uh, that's what got me uh, thinking about my first job after college, which ended up being with Bain and Company and consulting. Um, and one of their pitches was like, we're really results oriented, you know, we're not just about doing like analysis and reports, but we actually put plans into action and all of that. So their, their marketing definitely spoke to me. Um, and I met a lot of interesting people who uh, work there um, and former uh, Bain alums. And, um, you know, actually my now husband, then boyfriend um, also worked there. Funny story. Um, we originally met, he was an MBA student when I was a senior and we originally met because I had asked him to give me a mock interview to prepare for the consulting case studies. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's how, that's how we met. But, um, yeah, you're like, I want you to do this testing with me. Yeah, I I basically we were we were at this audition. I mean, it was it's a really funny story. So Wharton was celebrating its 125th anniversary. And um, my husband and I both randomly were at this audition. And he was number 15. And I was number 11. So he came up to me and was like, Oh, how did the audition go? Blah, blah. And at first, I kind of was like, who is this random guy talking to me? I just kind of blew blew him off. I was like, Oh, you can find out for yourself. And then as I was gathering my stuff and like packing to leave, I saw him talking to all these people about consulting. And he was saying that he worked at Bain, blah, blah. And, and I was like, well, actually I have this interview coming up, you know, maybe I should just ask him to give me a mock interview. So he always makes fun of me. He's like, yeah, you have the gall to blow me off. And then you came up to me to ask me for a favor. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, wait a minute, can I have help actually? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like very sheepishly like, um, would you mind giving me a mock interview? Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, so I, uh, that's how I ended up at Bain. And um, I was really excited about being based in the Hong Kong office uh, because it was a really it was a more entrepreneurial office within the system, uh, a smaller office that worked on really exciting projects that had to do with Asia expansion and so forth, which was totally in my wheelhouse, um, allowed me to use my uh, Mandarin capabilities and, you know, obviously um, kind of travel throughout Asia, which was such a cool experience. Uh, So I was based in Hong Kong, but really worked on a variety of projects in Beijing and Shanghai and 
um, Singapore, Taipei. So it was a really amazing start to my career, I would say. That's awesome. And so I know you've had a few different roles as well, like at Prada and um, you've got such a great, great resume. I'd love to hear how, at what point were you, where were you when you came up with the idea for Senrev? I would say that uh, kind of throughout my life and throughout my career, I've always, I've never had a shortage of ideas. So my brain was always thinking about, you know, is, is this something I could pursue? Or is this, this is a problem that I see in the world or in the market, right? Is this something that I could start or I could uh, solve this pain point? Or, you know, so I always had like, at any given time, probably like a list of three or four ideas. Um, and I just was always a, I was always like somebody who was too analytical, right? Or I, I had the self-talk of now's not the right time, or you need to get more experience, or you need to build up your resume more, right? So I was very much the classic um, entrepreneur, uh, but couldn't take that leap of faith for various reasons. Um, and with Zenrabi, it was different. So uh, you, you had mentioned Prada. So I had worked at Prada. Um, I went to uh, get my MBA from Stanford. And I led this um, uh, really interesting um, kind of study trek called the Lux Trek, where we met with a lot of different luxury brands in Europe, uh, Paris, Milan, um, et cetera. Uh, and I was really inspired by that. Um, so I, it, the building blocks for Senrev, I would say kind of happened throughout the course of my career. But the moment where I actually uh, came up with the idea, was determined to do it, uh, was when I was at the time leading retail for a company called Medallia, which is a big data analytics platform. Um, really amazing company, unicorn company, went public in 2019, has been you know, tremendously successful. And I was there during a really high growth period that was so exciting. And it was right when they went from more of a horizontal type of software platform to verticalizing. So financial services, hospitality, et cetera. And I was leading um, retail and working with a ton of major brands and retailers and so forth. Um, and, and seeing all of their customer feedback data so it was a really interesting experience. And I was actually in New York City. I was um, doing this panel for a variety of CMOs uh, talking about, you know, how important it is to invest in customer experience data and so forth. Um, and I had this weird kind of out-of-body experience where I was speaking about data analytics and software and all of this. You know, I was kind of looking at myself and telling myself, oh, it's time now for you to start your own company. Um, and you have all these amazing ideas and you really should be talking about that and not this anymore. Um, so on my flight back from New York to SF, I basically wrote the uh, business plan for Sunrev. That's so interesting. Cause when I first got the idea for my company, it happened in the middle of the night and I like woke up and I was like something tells me I need to do this. Like right now mm -hmm. I have to do this. It was like such a weird feeling. And I don't, I haven't really heard that kind of similar story on the show actually. So it's really cool that you have, you had that kind of out of body situation because you had so much doubt, I think before. And so what is it about this one time, I guess that really took you out of that? Do you, can you think about like how your mindset may be changed to even enable that to happen in the first place? Yeah, that's such a great question because, well, first of all, as someone who's very analytical and logical, it always makes me feel uncomfortable that the spark and, you know, it mm. didn't come from like analysis, right? It came from right. this very mystical kind of yeah. almost squishy kind of spiritual, spiritual type of yeah. thing. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, it's interesting to hear that um, none of the other people that you've interviewed have that kind of experience. But anyway, that was my experience. And I think the, the question that you asked is so interesting, right? So I would say um, at that time in my life, there were various forces at play. Um, and I think one of the most uh, kind of life-changing and critical forces was that I was a really young mom at the time. 
So I had just had my daughter. She was about two and a half. Um, and it was such a transformative experience for me because first of all, um, I would say among my peer group, I got married very young because, you know, my husband, um, or my boyfriend at the time was quite a few years older, right? Because, you know, we met when he was in business school and I was undergrad. Um, <clears throat> so my peers at the time were, you know, mostly still single, definitely not thinking about having kids and so forth, yeah. right? Um, so yeah, it was a kind of lonely experience. It was also like very, um, it just <clears throat> really changed how I thought about life and my career. It was the first time, you know, as an only child, and I'll admit as a fairly spoiled only child, I didn't really ever have to focus on anyone or anything else except for myself, you know, my career, my education, and my parents really uh, focus on that as well, right? They kind of taught me to really invest in my education, invest in my career, and that's what's uh, most important. And all of a sudden, I was this young mom, and my priorities were totally changed. Um, so it was like a huge identity crisis. It was like a really difficult uh, experience for me. I also turns out had really bad postpartum depression, which mm. often goes undiagnosed. And I totally yeah. didn't realize at the time. Um, so there are all these things that I was like, chemically that was happening to me. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately, the feeling that I had was, wow, now I have this serious element in my life um, that potentially is more important than anything else. Mm -hmm. And in order for me to have a job um, that competes for my love, attention and passion uh, on the same level as my child, like it really needs to be almost like another child for me, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of probably the backstory around the urgency and kind of that motivation. And the timing, right, of saying, I want to build something for myself so that I know that I'm like all in and I can be as committed as I am in my personal life as I can be in my business life. Exactly. Is that accurate? Exactly. Yeah, no. exactly. So you have this idea, you have this kind of spiritual moment of, oh my gosh, I really want to start something on my own. Did you know it was going to be a luxury handbag company or at what point did you realize that was what it is that you wanted it to be? You know, it's um, <clears throat> really interesting because one of the things that I would say is is probably most surprising about the Senrav journey is that uh, the business plan that I wrote uh, back in the day, you know, kind of off the cuff on that plane ride is pretty much still the vision for the company. And we haven't deviated from that. Um, and I think usually you hear a lot about companies that pivot and, you know, um, change ideas many times and so forth. Uh, but yeah, we, we, it's still that original business plan and that original, idea around fulfilling this vision to disrupt luxury by creating products that are really versatile and well-designed and beautiful, but is also practical for every day and is applicable to a multifaceted modern woman's real life. Awesome. And so what happened from there? So you get this, you know, moment, you're like, I need to do this. You put the business plan together on the airplane. And what, what was the first thing that you decided to do from there? Like, how did you get started? Oh, wow. Um, so at the time, I was still working full time at Medallia. So this became kind of like a nights and weekends obsession, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, it really kind of became this big, um, it occupied a huge part of my mind share. I was definitely obsessed with it. <laughs> um, so the first thing I did was I started um, uh, kind of brainstorming with a friend of mine. Um, she was a Stanford classmate. And, um, you know, I just kind of pulled her in. So she and I would talk about different things. And um, the reason why I felt like she might be an interesting person to work with is because her family has a lot of manufacturing capability 
Um, so she understands, you know, operations and manufacturing, like a lot of complementary skill sets that um, I didn't grow up having. So it was a very logical, rational approach to the process. Um, then I, I started kind of gathering data, I would say, right, to prove that my idea was a viable business. Uh, so I started looking at, you know, the size of the market. I started uh, speaking to different women who would be consumers to understand their pain points. Um, started speaking to various mentors and advisors, uh, which actually many of them told me that it was not a great idea, that I shouldn't do it. I should stay at Medallia until Medallia goes public. Um, but later found out that they were just uh, doing that on purpose to see, you know, how passionate and I and resolved I was. Yes, Very it was testing. all a test. Right. Yeah. They're like, let's see if she quits this early, you know, let's see if yep, she has yep. her to make it happen. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were kind of like, I want to see if she crumbles at the first sign of like criticism or negativity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So sure enough, I did it. And actually what was interesting for me to know about myself was the more quote unquote experts in the industry told me that it was impossible or really hard or um, not a great idea, or many have tried and failed or whatever it was, um, it made me more excited, actually, because I felt that, you know, it, there's no point in doing something that's obvious, right? And so I felt like, wow, to these people, this is a really non-obvious pursuit. Um, they don't get it, you know, but I have this insight and I do get it. So yeah, it was actually very exciting. What was the insight that you were seeing that the experts weren't weren't aware of? Um, I mean, it I think had a lot to do with me being in the space for so long and also um my own instincts as a consumer, right? Which is that uh traditional luxury brands were serving a woman that had a very fundamentally different lifestyle. Uh, you know, she probably has a driver, lives on Madison Avenue, doesn't need her bag or the products in her life to be functional in any way. You know, they're purely decorative for pleasure. Um, and, uh, you know, they can be fragile. They don't have to fit a laptop. They don't have to keep her organized because she doesn't carry that much stuff anyway. Um, they don't have to be lightweight because somebody is carrying her bag for her or, or she has a driver. Um, and so I think, uh, it was this insight that women today have so many more responsibilities and so many more facets to their lives. And one can be a young professional, a mother, uh, you know, somebody who's really active in the community, somebody who's creative, but somebody who's also uh, an executive. So there's so many um, responsibilities, demands, and facets to a woman's life, but products and brands haven't really kept up with that. You know, they still portray uh, women in their marketing campaigns as somebody who's like this leisurely person, you know, mm -hmm. laying by the pool or whatever. Um, and so I just felt like uh, spiritually, there was something missing, right? And then practically from a product perspective, I could never find that perfect bag. And even having worked at Prada and in fashion, um, I was constantly going from something that was super masculine and not attractive, but functional, like a laptop bag, right? Mm -hmm. To um, to something that was totally not practical. You know, it would kind of uh, cave when I put anything heavy, like a laptop in there. It would get all warped and it was so disorganized. Every time I traveled, like I'm always scrambling to find my passport or it would tip over during security and all my stuff would fall out. I mean, just, I think a lot of women can relate to that. Um, but I still try to use those bags because I felt like it fit my style better um, instead of like a black plastic, uh, you know, super square uh, laptop bag that's designed for a man. 
It's very interesting this that you saw that so early on is that you know these luxury brands really were kind of catering to and still do the ladies who lunch, right? It's like they go shopping, they're eating lunch at the store at Nordstrom or or you know some fancy fancy department store and you know, it's a, such a different customer than who you saw as the new emerging kind of luxury consumer that wasn't really being targeted, that needs a functional bag for work, for actual like life things, you know, not just leisure or shopping around. That's really interesting. So how did you come up with the name Senrep? That was also, it's so funny. I do a lot of great thinking um, when uh, I'm flying because you know, it's you, you kind of are devoid of distractions. And so I came up with Sunrev on a flight from LA to SF. And um, it was, uh, it was the type of thing where I was trying to think of like, what are some words that describe what I'm trying to do, which is uh, create something that is about dichotomies coexisting. It's about kind of opposing forces that come together that create a really perfect balance. Um, and also I wanted something that sounded aesthetically pleasing. You know, it has um, this, you know, European kind of uh, heritage, if you will, uh, because, you know, we obviously manufacture everything in Italy and um, in Europe where that's kind of the birthplace of luxury craftsmanship. So that that's really the feeling I was trying to evoke. And I started just playing with different words and so forth. Um, and then just, yeah, landed on Senra. So let's talk about fundraising. I know that you've raised $23 million so far. Back in the early days, you know, when you were trying to get this off the ground, can you kind of speak to how much you raised early on or did you self-fund it for how long and what those kind of different milestones were to get to where you are? today? Yes, I think the fundraising journey was very interesting for us. I mean, I think every company has a unique story when it comes to fundraising. And it has a lot to do with the type of company it is the, uh, the sector, um, you know, whether or not it's more focused on, um, like, is it a scientific technology that will take years to commercialize, right? Or is it mm -hmm. something like our business where, um, you know, we could start generating revenues and therefore cash flow and therefore fund the business through the business, you know, earlier, sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. um, so I think my philosophy at a high level about fundraising was that I wanted to raise capital that was appropriate for the stage that we were at, um, not ahead or behind that. And so in the beginning, uh, I did put in some capital myself and then uh, very quickly uh, raised some additional angel capital um, from various groups, family offices, uh, small angel investors, um, different funds that were focused on female uh, entrepreneurs like Halogen VC based in LA. Um, but it was all you know, fairly, uh, fairly small. Uh, and I wanted to be extremely scrappy. And again, as much as possible, prove out that the business can um, sustain the growth and kind of fund itself in many ways. Uh, so the capital was really just to allow us to move more quickly and uh, allowed us to recruit people, invest more in inventory, um, you know, develop more products, et cetera. Um, and then I think a big turning point came for us in towards the middle of 2019, where I just realized that the company was growing so quickly. There was so much momentum and demand in the market. We were constantly sold out. Um, and actually in our first year of launch, we launched in November and we were sold out by June. Well, we were sold out immediately and then we were sold out again by June, like really. Um, and so it was the type of thing where in the next year we were sold out by September and then the next year we were sold out by November. Like we kind of improved every year, yeah. Um, but we were, we were just always um, sold out. There was so much, it was very much like supply constrained 
and we weren't doing enough to meet the demand. So at late 2019, um, I took on institutional capital. And that was really because I felt like the company was at a juncture where it really needed to uh, scale and professionalize and again, meet the demand that was in the market. And I didn't want to hold back the company and the brand uh, due to any kind of capital constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I took on the, the funding um, in, in November of 2019. What's uh, some advice you have for founders out there that are fundraising? I'm sure you heard hundreds of no's as most founders do when they're fundraising. Um, can you share any kind of insights um, about the process that could be helpful? Well, it's it's definitely a humbling experience. <laughs> and I think uh, rejection is always hard. And it's the type of thing where, you know, I have to constantly remind myself, it's not you, it's them, right? Don't take it personally. And mm-hmm. it's actually objectively true, right? Because yeah. Oftentimes, the rejection has nothing to do with you, the idea, your attraction, the company, the data, the team that you built. It really has certain things to do with like where they are in their fund cycle or their partnership dynamics or uh, where they are in their own career as an investor. You know, maybe um, they invested in a few companies that were duds and they don't have enough political capital to push through this investment. Or, you know, there's so many things happening in the background, right? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of founders take things very personally and uh, kind of blame it on themselves, you know, if it doesn't work out, but really maybe there was very little to nothing they could have done differently um, Mm -hmm. to change, uh, uh, to change that situation. So that's some perspective that I feel like is always helpful, but yeah, I think rejection is always hurtful and it's never easy to deal with. And um, I definitely struggle with that. Um, I think the other thing that is really important is to think about it as a marriage. I mean, it's truly about a long-term relationship and long-term fit and trust. And there's so many, it's like, once you take the investment, I mean, you are really in it together, you know, and it's so hard to unwind. And so, uh, it's really important as a founder to do your diligence, to do reference checks, to really like, not just be so excited that you got that term sheet that you sign it right away, but like actually put in the time and really feel comfortable uh, around the terms, around uh, the people, you know, who's going to join the board. I mean, there's so many things that end up affecting uh, your life, your job, the company's destiny. um, And you don't want to work with somebody that, you know, you don't, you you would be unhappy with for a long period of time. Yeah, absolutely. You want to make sure that you're uh, getting along nicely with the person across the table, especially in that kind of situation. <laughs> as much as possible. Yeah. 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 And like really be on the same side, right? So to me, it was really important that our investors understood and embraced my vision, uh, really embrace some of the strategic risks that we were taking. So one of the things that we had talked a lot about is uh, what we're doing, which is expanding globally in a big way, you know, earlier in the life cycle of a company uh, than usual, you know, than they may be comfortable with, but we really wanted for them to embrace that and be excited about that, as opposed to constantly at every turn questioning whether or not that's the right approach. So you mentioned that 50% of your business is actually outside of the U.S. Can you kind of explain how, you know, you launched the business here in the U.S.? How Mm -hmm. and when did you decide to go global and why and what kind of led to that type of growth? Yeah, it's really, uh, I would say, like many things with Tenrev, it's intentional, but also authentic and organic. So from the beginning, I always had a global vision for the company. And I think it has a lot to do with my childhood and upbringing and, you know, the early beginnings of my career in terms of living in various places and uh, kind of 
experience having experiences outside of you know the silicon valley bubble or the california bubble or mm-hmm. uh you know the us bubble and so forth so anyway that was something that was always um part of the vision and i think we did it in a fairly organic way in the sense that we launched actually in new york city uh where you know, the major kind of fashion community in the US was because we felt it was important to get the um, the love and credibility from fashion uh, editors, influencers, people who are really important in the community, especially mm-hmm. as a newer brand that was uh, at a premium price point, it's really hard to break through in a short time. Mm-hmm. And so it, we felt it was important to launch in New York. Um, and then we uh, invested a lot in social media, which those platforms are fairly global. And so we started getting a lot of uh, organic demands for us to ship globally, uh, for us to ship to well Canada first, and then Singapore, and then London. And it makes a lot of sense, right? Because the women that we're speaking to uh, are savvy, stylish, sophisticated women that live in big cities around the world. You know, they're uh, young executives, bankers, doctors, creatives, you know, and so there's actually a lot of commonality between someone who lives in New York and someone who lives in London or Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, that person may have, you know, grown up in California, studied in London, and then now happens to live in Singapore, right? Um, so I think it was very organic. So we quickly scrambled to figure out global shipping. And then I would say in the last two years, we made a huge intentional effort uh, to expand globally, especially in Asia. Uh, we have expanded to platforms such as Tmall, which is the major e-commerce digital platform in China. Uh, we actually launched on 11-11 Singles Day, which is the biggest shopping day of the year globally. It's bigger than, you know, Black Friday and Cyber Monday and all of that. And we had a tremendous experience with that. Uh, and we were actually ranked number four on Tmall Global for the entire handbag category, which is tremendous since we're such a young brand still. And it was our first Singles Day. So yeah, that was really cool. Um, we've since hired a team on the ground there. Um, and again, ha- continue to make a lot of investments uh, for that expansion. So being a founder, you know, it's such a tough job sometimes. You know, you're really just learning on the fly a lot of the times. And there's so many challenges every day. What's one of the, you know, most challenging moments that you have faced as a founder? And how did you overcome it? Oh, there's so many, so many challenges. Um, it's it's funny because I think a lot of it has to do with expectation setting. And mm-hmm. for me, I've just kind of reset my expectations that I will have a lot of highs and lows. And as a result, um, the challenges don't seem quite as challenging. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, 2020 especially has been a very a very tough year uh, with the pandemic and all the uncertainties around that with our manufacturing being in Italy. And if you remember, uh, March of 2020, COVID hit Italy really hard and the entire country shut down and our um, partner there shut down for about two and a half months. But there was a time in April, like we didn't know if they would ever reopen. Um, So that I would say was extremely stressful. Um, because we run inventory so tightly. We have a really sustainable manufacturing model where we focus on zero waste and we never overproduce. And so having, you know, two and a half months of gap in terms of production was really uh, incredibly challenging for our business. Um, So that was something, you know, that we had to overcome, but it, it was almost... Uh, the the most stressful part of it was the uncertainty, right? So when people, um, you know, angry customers who reached out like, hey, I already waited a month for this, you know, is what's the deal? We just had to be really transparent and honest. Like, we don't know, you know, it's been yeah. shut down. It may reopen. Like, this is the latest date we have, but it may also not. So we'll just, 
be communicative with you. And thankfully, most people understood the circumstances. Um, but yeah, we have an incredible community. And so everyone was very supportive by and large, but it's really, it's really stressful when um, the future is so uncertain. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just kind of, you have to be flexible and adapt. Absolutely. And going through such a tough time, like COVID with your team, you know, what, what is your leadership style and how did you kind of show up during such a challenging time for your team? I think it was a huge learning experience for me. I definitely, as a first time founder and CEO, um, have grown a lot through this process. And especially in 2020, the unusual circumstances of COVID and everybody working remotely has been uh, a tremendous uh, learning experience for me. So first and foremost, I think um, I made a much more concerted effort to understand people's feelings about certain things, whether it was just daily stresses. You know, I think it affects the pandemic situation and working from home and all of that affects people really differently, right? One of the things that is incredibly challenging is if you have young children, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, and all of a sudden, not only are you working from home, they are not going to school and you have to, you know, be their teacher and homeschool them, but at the same time, do your work. And I mean, it's incredibly stressful. And so we actually, um, closed the office, but reopened it for people who just needed like a space to work quietly if they wanted to, you know, for a few hours. And Mm -hmm. um, so I think organizationally, I tried to be really flexible and understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, 2020 in the US also had a lot of social and political issues that really affected people. And so um, that was something that I was very intentional about in terms of allowing the team to support each other, right? If, um, you know, things that were happening in the world were affecting them personally, or made them feel really emotionally charged, or, you know, I think it was really important to have a support uh, structure or as a leader, just say that, Hey, I acknowledge that it's a really difficult time and we're all here to support each other. I felt that was really important. Um, and lastly, for myself, I actually realize that, you know, at this time with the scale uh, that we've reached and also the complexities um, and the global nature of the organization, um, I really just wanted to be proactive. So I actually brought on board a leadership coach, um, which I think has been incredibly helpful. Um, I also joined a group called YPO. um, And so it's a really interesting group where I have a peer group of executives and founders and so forth that we meet on a monthly basis to just share different things that are going on, just have really interesting experience sharing conversations that have been really informative, but also helpful and allows me to reflect. So I'm definitely investing and putting in the time and um, really continuing to be intentional about improving my leadership capabilities. That's really awesome. I think that um, leadership coaches are really kind of an underrated, not no one really talks about it. Um, and I think that it's, it's really important to have actually, you know, I think being a founder CEO is a really tough job and to have a coach coaching you through something they've never been through before, especially as a first time founder and, you know, being able to have that person to rely on and talk to, cause it's pretty lonely. I think, you know, at the top when you don't have, can't really talk to investors about things. Can't really talk to too many advisors, definitely not employees, you know, where do you go? You know, your, your partner's probably sick of hearing it and you just need a different perspective once in a while. So, um, I think leadership coaches are, are really great. I would, skeptical at first, but I think it's really to your point, important to just have a sounding board sometimes. Um, And then also, I think the really good coaches have incredible pattern recognition, because they've worked with so many executives, and it's likely that they've dealt with the situation before. And so 
um, what I find interesting is they don't necessarily, or my coach doesn't necessarily say, Hey, this is what I advise you to do. Right. It's not very directive, but it's like, Oh, I've seen this scenario before, right. It could play out this way, or it could play out this way, you know, um, like talk me through how you're thinking about it. Right. So yeah, I, I feel like it's been a really helpful, um, you know, spiritually as well as strategically. Yeah, I think they also help in a lot of ways to make sure you're not getting in your own way, you know, to keep yourself at check um, and your mindset in the right place um, to keep you going. Um, Speaking of motivation, what's your why and and what keeps you going and being persistent or, or positive every day? Do you have like a daily routine that you do or meditation or, you know, anything you can share? I tried for a little while to stick to like a really regimented, rigorous, you know, meditation, workout type of routine. But then I found myself really frustrated when there are certain days where either you just don't feel motivated, or you're so busy, or you didn't get sleep. And, you know, as a result, it throws things up. So I kind of cut myself a break. And I basically said, okay, my goal is to meditate two to three times a week, you know, I'm not going to beat myself up if I miss it and only do it one time this week. Um, but I'll try to do two to three times a week. Um, and, and sometimes it's really just five minutes or it's 10 minutes on the call map or, you know, it's not like this fancy thing. Um, although in my YPO group, I recently learned a meditative technique. Um, it's all about balance and it's all about breathing. And, uh, it's basically like you breathe with your left side and then you breathe out and then you breathe with your right side. So you kind of alternate sides and it helps you focus a little bit more. So I've been trying that, which I really like. Um, and then I try to work out two to three times a week, you know, whether it's yoga or, um, you know, like a little online dance class or something that, uh, allows me to stay active. Awesome. And what's something you think most people don't know about building a business? Ooh, um, I think that most people, uh, if they haven't done it before, I think they don't realize just how immersive it is, like how it becomes your total being, you know, and uh, really like it's an obsession and you really have to be that passionate about it. And you really have to wake up every day feeling as energetic as you were the prior day, even if things are not going well or um, things are yeah, like totally sideways to your point earlier, you kind of have to put this brave front up for everybody, your investors, your employees, your partners, um, your customers. And, uh, that, that type of energy, I think at least for me, can't be faked. It has to be actually authentic. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would say that if, you're thinking about starting something or doing something or really like you have to like really think about, wow, every day for the next however many years, you know, call it 10 years, right. I have to be a hundred percent on and excited. Um, and like, what is that thing that will allow me to do that? Because it is totally like, you can't really separate yourself from the job. There is no separation, you know, it's totally integrated. Right. No, that's really good advice when you're to the entrepreneurs that are listening or entrepreneurs, you know, to really keep that in mind, um, that it's important to, you know, choose something that you're very, very passionate about that you can focus on and be excited about every day, which is tough, you know, to figure out what that is. It's really tough. I think a lot of people struggle to figure out what that is, you know, what it is that they want to start. And they're kind of waiting probably for that moment, um, that spark of innovation. But before we kind of wrap up here, do you have any other final advice that you'd like to share for the listeners or aspiring entrepreneurs out there? One of the things that uh, is the hardest thing is to actually just take the leap and get started. And it's really interesting, because I would say that uh, once I did that, I never looked back, you know, I never uh, the, the self-talk just went away, right? It's like, there was so much before it took place. And then, and then, and then you take that leap of faith and then that all goes away. So I would say, 
if you're thinking about it, right, but hesitant, I mean, definitely do your diligence and definitely do all the things that you need to do to feel comfortable, right? Whether it's, you know, financially or personally or the support that you need from your family and so forth. Um, But it's the type of thing where once you do it, it actually in a way becomes a lot easier. Um, So it's really that first step to me that's uh, the most intimidating. I mean, because kind of once you're on the wheel, you have to keep going. It's like a rat wheel, you know, you just like can't really stop. You just keep going and uh, you probably get fueled up every day as things progress. You know, that's motivation in itself. Yeah, yeah. And you don't want to stop going. You know, I think it's really exciting. And every day is new. And in a way, it's like raising a child, you know, there's so much growth and change that happens on a weekly basis, or even on a daily basis. Um, And, you know, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, she's walking or she's talking, right. And it's the same thing with the company. It's like, we started in my garage and then we outgrew my garage took over my basement right and all of a sudden we were moving out of the house that was a huge moment um and then all of a sudden we were you know raising some serious capital or growing the business outside of the U.S. and establishing offices teams globally and so there's always something new every day that's really exciting and fun and motivating and it's just a tremendous learning experience. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your awesome experience and your entrepreneurial journey. Um, I really appreciate your time. And thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thanks for all the great questions. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.